0: Will you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This is not the sermon I intended to preach this week. My original plan was to follow up on last week's walk through the Old Testament with a walk through the New Testament. And then the violence in Charlottesville, Virginia, took place, and though I did refer to it last Sunday, I have come to feel that my response was just lukewarm. Since then, the juxtaposition of those events and a discussion in our Bible study class has led me to search my conscience and to offer a response that is in keeping both with my faith and my calling as a pastor. Today, I must speak from my heart. The events you already know about. Last week, a torchlit parade of white supremacists, neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan members, and others gathered to protest the removal of a statue of Civil War leader Robert E. Lee on the campus of the University of Virginia. They were met by counter-protesters, and the ensuing confrontation deteriorated into violence, leaving three dead and several injured. It was a shocking and appalling display of racism and hatred. And I have no doubt that some who were there found justification for their attitudes and, accident and actions in Scripture, particularly in the words of the Old Testament. As it happened, the main topic of this week's study of Adam Hamilton's book, Making Sense of the Bible, was God's violence in the Old Testament, as Hamilton notes, many people have asked him, why does God seem so loving, compassionate, and merciful in the New Testament, but angry, harsh, and vengeful in the Old Testament? It's a good question, one that several people in our study group have asked. So let me share a few of Hamilton's insights with you. Though most of the approximately 23,000 verses in the Old Testament assert that God is indeed gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, there are several hundred verses that would seem to belie that claim. Perhaps the most shocking of these are the passages in which God appears to command the people of Israel to commit genocide. Many of these passages appear in the book of Joshua, which tells the story of Israel's conquest of Canaan. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the people of Israel finally arrive at the land promised to their ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they immediately go to war against the inhabitants of that region. The people of Canaan lived in what we might call city-states, walled cities with farmland around of them, and one of those walled cities was Jericho. Many of us grew up hearing the story from Joshua 6 or singing the song about how Israel's army marched around the city once a day for 6 days accompanied by priests blowing trumpets and others carrying the ark of the covenant and how on the 7th day the army marched around the city 7 times and then at a prearranged symbols, the people all shouted and the walls came tumbling down It's a great story but that's not how it ends it ends with Joshua instructing his people that it is God's will that the entire city be devoted to destruction. The technical term for this is harem, and it refers to something that is completely dedicated to God, so completely that it is destroyed so that only God can spiritually receive it. And so when those walls fall down, Israel's troops put to death every man, every woman, every child, Every donkey and cow and sheep in the city of Jericho. Every person was killed without mercy and without being given the chance to escape. And this, according to the Bible, was God's command. I don't know about you, but I find this passage and others like it to be very disturbing. Would the God I know and trust, the God of grace and love, really demand this of his people? Does God, in fact, affirm hatred and violence toward those who are other? My answer is no, absolutely not. I say this for several reasons. First of all, I find explanations that seek to justify the violence in Jericho and in Joshua uh, to be lacking in validity. Some explain these texts by pointing to God's authority to give life and take life at will, and I agree that God has such authority, but like Hamilton, I feel that that explanation makes God's actions seem arbitrary and downplays God's love and compassion and mercy. Others justify these texts by saying that the Canaanites deserved to be exterminated because they worshipped other gods and because, or because they were particularly wicked. Sadly, this argument has been used over and over again to justify genocides and other acts of violence against those who were seen as a threat or judged to be inferior or were simply different, and I reject those arguments entirely. I absolutely believe that the Bible was inspired by God and that it was given to us to guide and bless us and to bring us closer to our Father in Heaven. But I also believe, as Hamilton does, that the Bible was written by people who, like all of us, were influenced by their times and their culture, just as you and I are influenced by our culture and our times, and whose understanding of God was filtered through their own preconceived ideas and theological biases. The warrior leaders of Israel, men like Moses and Joshua and David, lived during a time when violence was seen as a part of God's way of accomplishing God's purposes, a time when people believed that the gods sent them into battle and fought alongside them. When it comes to the stories of violence in Joshua, Hamilton suggests, and I quote, that in this case the biblical authors were representing what they believed about God, rather than what God actually inspired them to say. I agree. Mind you, this does not mean that we should ignore these scriptures. They were written to inspire later generations to courage and faith, and there are many passages in Joshua that do just that. And it's also important to read them to remind us how easy it is, even for the most faithful people, to justify hatred, violence, and war because God is on our side. But the most important reason that I do not believe that God supports hatred and violence toward anyone, especially those we label as other, is Jesus Christ. Hamilton says that when God wanted to speak definitively to humankind, he didn't write a book. He sent Jesus. He calls Jesus the unmitigated Word of God and refers us to the words in the opening chapter of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. Jesus came to make us know, make God known, and everything in Scripture and in our lives must be measured against the Word made flesh. So how did Jesus respond to those who were considered to be other? He touched lepers and made them whole. He healed the daughter of a Gentile woman who was described as a Syrophoenician or, interestingly enough, as a Canaanite. He also healed the servant of a Roman centurion who worked for the government that oppressed his people. Though the Samaritans were a group of people hated by the Jews. Jesus chose to reveal his identity to a Samaritan woman and told the story of a Samaritan who helped a Jew in order to illustrate what it means to love one's neighbor as oneself. How did Jesus respond to sinners? He sat down and ate dinner with them with prostitutes and tax collectors like Zacchaeus and Matthew. He forgave a woman caught in adultery. He called those who oppressed others to account with some pretty harsh words, but he never used violence against them. In fact, the only time I can recall Jesus being violent was when he cleansed the temple, when he drove out the animals that were being sold there and overturned the tables of those who changed Roman coins for temple ones. But even then... He didn't hurt anyone. On the contrary, it's very clear that Jesus rejected the way of violence. He told Peter to put away his sword when Peter attempted to defend Jesus as he was being arrested. He refused to use his amazing power to save himself. And while on the cross, Jesus asked his father to forgive those who had crucified him. Jesus accepted, respected, and cared for those who were seen as others. He offered acceptance, violence, and reconciliation to those who were sinners. He rejected violence as a means of carrying out God's will. And though he was the Son of God, he did not claim the privilege that he deserved, but told his disciples that he had come not to be served, but to serve. This is the one whom I call whom we call Lord and Savior. And because of that, I speak from my heart today. I am shocked and appalled by the displays of hatred and racism that erupted into violence in Charlottesville. I am dismayed and, yes, frightened that so many people marched under the banners of white supremacy and Ku Klux Klan and neo-Nazism. These ideologies and the racism represent are neither American nor Christian, and they must be challenged. Today, I am thinking about those courageous clergy who locked arms in Charlottesville and marched into the middle of that violence, singing about their faith. I'm not that courageous but I'm inspired by their action. I'm thinking about the parents of Heather Heyer, who was killed when an automobile plowed into a crowd of counter-protesters counter on Saturday. At her memorial service, Heather's father spoke of forgiveness, and her mother, Susan Bro, offered these challenging words. You ask me, what can I do? You need to find in your heart that small spark of accountability. What is there that I can do to make the world a better place? What injustice do I see? You poke that finger at yourself like Heather would have done, and you make it happen. You find a way to make a difference in the world. She was amazing, and she moved me to tears. And I also think today of a dear friend, Dr. Raylinda Brown, who just passed away this morning. Raylinda was organist for many years at Redondo First and a professor of music at the University of Irvine and later administrator at uh, Loyola Marymount. And she was an amazing person. She taught me so much about singing and in particular about singing the songs of her people spirituals and gospels and we spoke on occasion of the prejudice that she encountered even as an educated woman in the university system i think of her today and know her courage and her heart and her love and i hope that that will move me and inspire me to do more than just say a few words to you on sunday morning I hope that you'll understand. So the question that uh, confronts me is how do I make a difference? How do we make a difference? In a statement issued earlier this week, Bishop Bruce O., President of the United Methodist Council of Bishops, suggests that we begin by examining our own hearts for the prejudice that contributes to attitudes of supremacy or hatred or to violence or silence or fear. Peacemaking and reconciliation always begins within. We need to look within. I need to look within. And then to listen to Jesus, the Word of God, who encouraged his followers to counteract hatred with love and evil with goodness. We also need to pray for the Holy Spirit's guidance for ourselves, our congregation, and for the church as a whole, so that regardless of our political views, doesn't matter we will be able to work together to bring healing and hope and peace to our nation and yes we also need to pray for those who feel so disenfranchised so angry so afraid that they feel they must resort to violence for they are God's beloved children too and we need to do more than just pray and listen although that is a really good start We, I, must dare to get to know people who are different from me, to see them through God's eyes and to learn from them. I must find the courage and conviction to speak out, to speak out in love against those things that tear us apart and threaten harm. I must learn to follow Christ regardless of my fears. I ask for your prayers even as I pray for you.